This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Every year since 2008, Internal Comms pros from around the world have responded to the State of the Sector Report. And because it's been running for 13 years and because it asks similar questions year on year, this report has become a useful way for the IC community to benchmark its activities and ambitions. So, with the 2021 Gallagher State of the Sector report hot off the press, I wanted to reach out to an experienced and thoughtful in-house comms practitioner to get to grips with this year's findings. And who better than Kate Jones? Kate is Head of Communications and Corporate Affairs at Tarmac. Now, Tarmac, for those of you who don't recognise the name, is in the construction business. It supplies the materials that, well, basically shape the world around us and is perhaps best known for the invention of asphalt, a product that remains synonymous with its brand. Kate is a qualified internal communications specialist with 25 years experience, both agency and in-house, across a number of industries. She is the elected chair of the board at the Institute of Internal Communication here in the UK and a fellow of the Institute and was named Internal Communicator of the Year in 2016. Many of you may also know her from her Twitter handle, How I See It. I've long wanted Kate on the show 
Whenever I've heard her speak, she does so with great authority, born from real life experience. So please enjoy this deep dive into the state of our sector. So Kate, you have very kindly agreed to help us explore this year's Gallagher State of the Sector Report. And I can only say thank you so much for doing that. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me. I know I've um, listened to the podcast since the first series and hoped to be on it and was embarrassed to see that we're on about series five now and it's we've only just managed to get together. So good to be chatting to you today, Katie. We got there in the end. We did. So the, the first question I want to ask you really is, is more of a kind of general question about this type of research. It says, Gallagher is saying that this is intended to help readers identify gaps in their practices and understand how and where they can improve. Hand over heart, Kate, what would you normally do with this kind of research? Do you pay attention to these kinds of reports? And if you do, does it influence your work? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think um, the state of the sector is particularly useful because it's got that longevity now. Um, I think it's it's certainly over a decade. 2008, I think, was the first state of the sector report. And I think that gives it a perspective that perhaps other research and other reports lack. It's it's able to to, to, to set out those trends over that sort of decade of, of communications practice. So it is one that I use. I've used it in very, very practical and real ways. So, for example, when I'm talking about my team size, I have used it to benchmark against other organisations. Um, and I found that really useful to to kind of point out that we are often smaller than other than other teams, and yet you know small and perfectly formed, we do deliver many of the things that the report covers. So I have used it in very very practical ways in terms of, of benchmarking where we sit and the type of activity that we deliver. So looking first at the eight hundred or so people that responded to this survey. It looks on the face of it a fairly representative sample. The majority of respondents are communicating with a workforce of between 500 and just over 5,000 employees. This is really a sort of a a segue question because it enables me to ask you about your role and the size of your workforce at Tarmac. So where would you place yourself uh, amongst these respondents? Um, Yeah, I think we're I think we are typical in terms of our team size. We've always found that we sit vaguely in the middle. Currently, Tarmac has just shy of 8000 employees. So we're not the biggest um, respondent to the report. We're not the smallest. So we're we're kind of somewhere in the middle. But I think the, the, the team size and the employee base questions are interesting. But just from the headlines alone, you, you're not necessarily comparing apples with apples. We have 8,000 employees, but we, we have many, many hundreds of sites. We have nigh on 12 business units and functions that we need to support. And that's a very different model to, say, a big financial services or professional services organization, which may have more people, but potentially based on fewer sites. One's going to need a, a, a very more hands-on and a very different model than another. So whilst I do use it, and I would say that we sit somewhere in the middle, it's a lens. That's all you can do, really. You can't go further than that and say, what is the detail underneath those organisations? Um, that's why I'm quite encouraged to see things like the IOIC Awards this year asking for more detail on team size, because I think it does make a difference. So yeah, it's a lens, but you need that next level of understanding of the sector that you're talking about for it to be truly comparable. When it comes to report lines, it looks like around half of respondents reporting to corporate communications, but there is a growing number reporting into HR. So that's Mm. a rise 
from 14% in 2014 to 24% this year. Mm. And looking at our budgets, it doesn't look like our budgets have increased. The size of our teams aren't increasing, although um, I think anecdotally, we all feel like we're doing more. Again, does this feel representative in terms of your experience, your budget and your report line? Where do you report into? Well, currently I am corporate affairs. So I look after the internal comms, external comms and community engagement teams at Tarmac. So I guess that means the internal comms people are typical because they report to me as the head of corporate affairs. I report into HR ultimately. So I report to the HR director and I've reported everywhere in different organisations. <laughs> I've reported into obvious places like brand and marketing, to business development. I sat with finance for a short and reasonably unhappy time. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I now report into HR, so that does, that does make us typical. But whenever we talk about reporting lines, the thing I always say back is it doesn't really matter about reporting lines. It's more about relationships. It doesn't matter where you sit because you're going to be working across the whole organisation. That said, I do appreciate that the reputation of the function where you report is, is going to make your life easier or harder, depending on that function's reputation. And it can also bring with it um, a perception of what you're there to do, which you may have to battle against or, or may serve you. But I think it's more about relationships than reporting lines, to be honest. Absolutely. So the impact of COVID-19, this survey sort of starts by asking respondents what sort of post-COVID trends will their organisations be building on in 2021? I have to say, I found this a slightly clumsy question, but anyway, let's let's work with it. It's probably a little bit too early to talk about post-COVID, I think, but it looks like those top three areas of focus are well-being, diversity and inclusion, and new ways of working. So I suppose my question is, are there any surprises in, in those three? And is this a sort of knee-jerk response to the pandemic or do you think these might be focuses of um, or topic areas that are here to stay? I think COVID has undoubtedly shone a light onto those issues, um, particularly well-being, particularly new, new ways of working. But they were there before. So let's look on the positive side and say that COVID will be a catalyst for dealing with those issues, talking more openly about those issues and hopefully comms people helping their organisations talk and deal with those issues more openly. So I absolutely think they're right, but I think they were there before. There was one um, a little bit further outside of the top three, which, which was more flexible working patterns, and maybe that is picked up in the new ways of working, but I think that specifically ought to come up the table a little bit because we are all working differently. To take the wellbeing point, I read a really interesting piece from Mike Klein um, in his Changing the Terms um, column about this. And he suggests that there's a danger here for internal comms people. We could be the sticking plaster. We could be the people that, that, that patches up those who are struggling with well-being through a, a, a well-placed yoga class here or, or, or other intervention and yet sends them back out to the front line when the organisation has not dealt with the issues that are causing impacts on well-being. So I hope he's wrong. I fear he's right. And I think yes. that it's on all of us to say, if we have brought well-being into the focus of the organisation, let's have the right conversations about the root causes and fixing those root causes rather than a well-meaning but potentially misplaced initiative on top of those. 
And I read that piece too from Mike. We'll put a link to the show in the show notes to it. It was well thought through. And I think what he was also saying was exactly that, actually, that well-being is such a huge and diverse topic. We might raise it and shine a light on it and reflect some problems, but we can't possibly be the ones that solve this problem. So yeah, it's a it's a deep-rooted issue in most organizations. It's it's a good one to talk about from an internal comms perspective because we can't fix it on our own. What we can do is bring data and we can bring insight and we can bring reasons as to why this is an issue, but we're not going to fix it on our own. And it's up to the organization to take us seriously and 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 deal with it at the root cause. And I think that's true for a lot of things that internal comms people are trying to fix on their own <laughs> or with or with or with well-meaning allies. So two thirds of respondents believe their level of influence has increased during 2020. Mm-hmm. Looking deeper into influence, 87% agree that internal communicators are viewed by senior leaders as trusted advisors. Now, this mm-hmm. is a massive increase in influence. And I'm just wondering, again, is this a knee jerk reaction to the pandemic? Do you think it's here to stay? Have you seen your influence increase? Yeah, I I'm a, I'm a bit of a cynic on this one, I'm afraid. Um, I truly hope that the increased status of internal comms that we're all reporting and the increased profile that we're all reporting is based on the right things. We have undoubtedly raised our profile, but I wonder how much of that has been based on tactics, on great information delivered really quickly to help people understand the organisation's response to COVID and, and also the impact outside of work, because COVID, of course, has been not just a work change, it's 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 infiltrated every aspect of our lives. So how we maintain that is the right question. Um, how do we use that platform that we've now found and push the conversation where we want it to go? This is this is the genuine influencing um, opportunity that we have. We can't slink back into the shadows if we have now stepped forward. And your second point in terms of kind of my own experience of that, I definitely feel that I have had even more conversations with with senior leaders um, that have genuinely shaped the response that the organisation took to COVID. So what that looked like was a, a, a war room that we set up. Um, so eight o'clock in the morning, six o'clock at night, there was myself, the finance director, the HR director and the chief exec. And we would piece together what we'd heard during the day or, the, or, or, or at the press conference that evening. And we would translate it into the organization's response. And I don't mean how we would communicate the response. I genuinely felt that I was part of that, that group that was deciding what we would do as a result of where the pandemic was headed. So I, I felt um, I had a great relationship with those people already. Um, so whether I was invited into that because of a previous relationship or because of a new focus on the importance of comms, I couldn't tell you. But I used it um, and I think that it will benefit us once we start going back to normal. Um, so, yeah, I think the influencing question is the right one. But are we influencing for where we want to get to would be my question. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that you've actually defined influence as shaping the decisions, shaping the conversations, encouraging people Mm -hmm. to have the conversations that matter. Mm -hmm. I think that's the question people need to be asking themselves. So turning to channels, this year's report, and I think for the first time, creates three categories for the huge number of channels that exist, I know, in many organisations. So these three categories they've chosen are broadcast, self-service and collaboration channels. So my first question really is a general one. Is this a helpful way of thinking about channels? Is this how you would categorise channels at Tarmac? 
it, it's not how I've categorized channels before, not in those exact terms, but I recognize um, some of our channel strategy in it, insofar as all the channels that we have um, have a defined primary audience. I like nothing better than when the finance director mentions that they don't think the magazine's for them. And I think, great, it's not, it's printed, it's for the front line. And I'm quite happy to have that conversation as many times as I need to. So we do have a defined primary audience and a defined purpose for all of all of the channels that we have. I think those distinctions show that we increasingly need to enable people to do more of their communication or self-serve some of the information that they need. So I quite like that self-serve category that's come in. So yeah, I, I recognize a lot of it. It's not a structure that I use, but it's certainly one that I could see myself using. Um, although I, I suspect that like a number of organizations, we do still skew towards broadcast channels. I agree. And actually, when I looked at the list in broadcast, the actual specific channels, I thought, you know, you can get a bit of a conversational element, even mm -hmm. in those broadcast channels, you just have to work a bit harder to do it. But mm -hmm. I would be an advocate of, of, of trying even so. The clear winner when it comes to sort of digital platforms this year seems to be Microsoft 365. So mm -hmm. everyone using or a lot of people using Teams, I'm guessing maybe Yammer. Again, does that align with your own experience? Are you on 365? We are. And we we actually rolled it out about a year to 18 months before we were kind of forced to use it in anger. And people people weren't. You know, they were using it to send instant messaging. They would never have done a phone call through it. They weren't using all of the collaborative tools um, that we now do use. So I think it's it was forced on us. It was forced adoption. And the report does say that. Um, it does ask whether this is new technology rolled out too quickly. And I definitely recognize that. Um, my concern is that we, we talk about channel shift and encouraging people to use different channels. This hasn't been channel shift. This is channel shove. We've given people absolutely no choice about using this. And a couple of really interesting things have happened, um, certainly in my, in my experience. My first thing is, what happened to phone calls? Every single call now has to be a video call. Um, that's massively contributing to the screen fatigue that everybody's reporting. I noticed some tweets yesterday about um, a company that's developing an app for walking meetings. Yeah, I noticed I thought, that. That's a phone. You've got one already. <laughs> but no, it's got to be an app. It's got to be an app. So that was interesting. Um, but we aren't using it, I don't think, to support the asynchronous working, the collaboration that these tools are really useful for. Instead, we're letting them contribute to this always on culture that we're struggling with. So I fear that the channel shelf has come way before the required culture shift to let people use them to their best advantage. I think you're absolutely right to link that then to the whole well-being agenda as well, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely sure you're right on that. What stood out for me when looking at the deeper sort of channel usage is that, and it might just be my reading of the report, but the most used channels are never rated as also the most effective. <laughs> and I just wonder, does that mean we are continuing to try and persevere with channels that really deep down we know aren't quite working? Oh, probably. We've all got our favourite children, haven't we? I think we do cling to things that we're personally fond of. I'm, I'm sure we do. Um, it's linked also to measurement. You know, if we don't measure how effective the channels are, how do we know what to stop? Um, and this is another area, I think, where, where COVID can be a great catalyst because you can do anything and blame it on COVID. 
and nobody will bat an eyelid. We certainly used it as a catalyst to change our channel's mix. I mean, we did two things. Um, one that was advised and the other probably wasn't. Now I look at it. So the inadvised one that is that we launched a whole new intranet um, during the middle of the pandemic, um, wow. which was not the best year to do it, given that half the team had been on furlough. But somehow we managed to launch our new intranet by the end of the year. And that's 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 been brilliant in, in many ways. The more considered and the, the more advised thing that we did is, is we turned off a lot of our business as usual communications. We already had a strategy for what went out as an announcement or to which group or whatever it might be. Um, but we said, you know, no more. We need to leave the bandwidth clear for the COVID messages and the safety messages to reach through to the front line. And so what we did was we stopped all of that and introduced a new weekly roundup. And we'd wanted to do that for a while. We just right. used COVID as the excuse and everybody thought it was brilliant because their inbox wasn't busy and they knew it was a destination and it did leave the bandwidth clear for the messages to get through, particularly to the people in our operational business whose world did not change. They carried on doing their jobs in the same way on the same sites, albeit with new COVID secure protocols everywhere. But their world didn't change. And we had to find that balance between making making the, the the point that people were struggling and were working in new in new ways with many new demands on their time without ignoring the fact that for the bulk of our the bulk of our audience, life went on as normal. While I've got you, I must ask a question that I know taxes a lot of people who've got what you've got, which is a huge number of your workforce are not sat behind a screen. But we know from right. this research and we know just intuitively, we know as human beings that face-to-face -face is still rated as the most effective. How do you get around that challenge of face-to-face -face with an organisation that's very dispersed, I'm guessing? Well, they, they, they do appreciate face-to-face -face, um, and they always report that their most trusted channel is their line manager. So you right. kill two birds with one stone there. We we do a lot through the line. We provide a lot of information to line managers so that they can fulfill that role that we know people are looking to them to do, whether it's for information or alignment. They set the culture on their sites. So absolutely, um, line managers are a really important part of the face-to-face -face mix. And um, I noticed that in the report too. I think face-to-face -face is, is increasingly seen as important and this report is, is no different we're lacking it this year, of course. Um, it's always been an important channel, but I think everyone is just craving social interaction in a way that we never did before. And, and that's why it's important. I think the second thing that makes it important is that we are managing to work effectively remotely because we had pre-existing relationships in, in the real world. So what we're doing is trading on that social capital that we built up before we were forced to work virtually. Um, so if we are managing to preserve cultures and if we are managing to preserve values, it's because we're trading on those previous relationships. So what does that mean for new joiners? What does it mean for culture change and, and any new values or new culture programs that might be coming along? It will be so much harder if we are still forced to be apart or if we have a blended workforce where we're gonna to need to make sure that everyone has the same access. Coming back to Mike Klein, I know that he's written a lot about remote onboarding. It's certainly something we're having to do now. How do you onboard someone where you've never met them, you've ne even through the interview process in person? I think it's a big challenge. You mentioned change there, and change is another part of this report. It looks like in 2021, this is going to be another year of change. 
there's been a lot of change programs already. The survey asked, when it comes to communicating change, how would you rate your organization's ability across a range of activities? Mm. There's quite a long list there, which really we know we need to be getting better at supporting change. Is there anything there that surprises you? The, the first thing that surprised me was the thing that was at number one. So when we asked, when the report asked people, what do we need to get better at in terms of change? The top thing says a distinct visual identity. And I really yes. hope that doesn't mean check a logo on the project and job done. Because <laughs> I don't know about I you, but I spent, my, I spent my life saying to change managers, no, you don't need a logo for your project. But who knew? That seems to be the thing that would fix it all along. We've been getting it wrong, Katie. Um that worried me. It can't mean I agree. that. It must mean something else. Um, and I think what it speaks to is more the second point in, in the report, which says that you have to have a long-term vision. And I would say alongside an immediate need for the change, which is the compelling change story that's mentioned there. So I, I think the things that we need to get better at, logos aside, visual identities aside, are indeed having that long-term vision. So people understand that this isn't a short-term knee-jerk reaction to the current market conditions caused by COVID. It's part of a long-term vision for the organisation. But then there's something languishing at the bottom of that table that definitely needs to be higher. Um, and that's the importance of insights into employees' understanding and adoption of the change. That's languishing at the bottom of the table. And yet we need to spend more time on checking that the change is sticking whether that's mystery shopper calls that people understood the messaging, whether it's checking through new processes and systems that new ways of working are being adopted. Definitely that insights piece needs to be further up that table. And I think sometimes providing the insight before people get going. So you can say, look, you know, we already know a barrier might be this. So mm -hmm. when you're coming to plan your change, let's think about that. You know, the mm -hmm. whole kind of asking before you tell scenario, that sort of does bring us quite neatly onto measurement. It seems yet again that we aren't so bad at tackling the basics, you know, the output metrics, like mm -hmm. how many people did that go to that email? How many people went to the event? but we are still not as good at measuring the harder stuff, the more intangibles, the behavioural change, the business outcomes. But I'm guessing this might not be a result that, you know, particularly surprises you. Uh, no, not at all, because it's much easier to measure hits than habits. It always has been. Um, so no, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. This is one where I think that we, we blame ourselves a lot as communications when it isn't actually our intention and certainly not our desire. The business, in my experience, is not always good at articulating strategic objectives for us to then track. It's not always good at giving us the data that we need to show movement, whether it be on attrition or whether it be on the new ways of working or the new expenses system or whatever it may be, never mind anything harder like emotional and cultural impact. So I'm not surprised, but I, I would say that we shouldn't necessarily take all of the blame for that on our own shoulders, because I, I've, I've had experiences where it has been difficult to shake out any strategic um, objectives from the business when we're going through a change programme. I agree. That conversation about what does success look like? And then you think, um, getting it done on time. Awareness. Yes, I'd like some awareness, please. We sell that by the yard. How much awareness would you like today? <laughs> Am I allowed to nick hits and habits in future that, yes. as, a, as, a, as a tagline about what it's easy to measure, what it's desperately hard to measure. Thank you Absolutely. for that. That's very helpful. Now, respondents list a number of barriers to, to measurement. Other than the one you've just suggested, which is 
oh, you know, is, is that intangible one of what really does success look like? What have we got to measure here that makes mm-hmm. sense? Any other barriers that surprise you in that list or that you experience and get frustrated by? I think there's a couple of observations there. The first thing is, you know, it's really good that the report shows that where measurement does happen, it's being used to focus on resource, um, putting the resource where it counts. So it's being used to focus activity, to focus and tweak and refine messaging. So where measurement is happening, it is being used in a, in a great way. The other thing I'd say about measurement is none of us came into comms to be analysts or statisticians. <laughs> At least I didn't. I came into comms to tell stories and help people join the dots. But there are people in my organisation who love that sort of stuff. And I bet those people are on your change programme. They're just in a different work stream. So go and find them, ask them for their help, but they'll be tracking benefits from from here to eternity for the change programme. So get them on yours. See if they can either give you some insight to help you do it, or even better, they could perhaps bring some of that measurement into the change programme for you because it's their skill. It's not necessarily ours. Let's use them. Go and find a friend and network. Find a friend who is an analyst, definitely. Now, the report, sort of the, the real authors of the report have this kind of slight shock surprise that only one in 20 of us are benchmarking our IC practices with peer organisations or competitors. And I wondered whether that might be slightly fake surprise because I don't know, honestly, that many of my clients are doing that external, external benchmarking other than possibly looking at this report. Are you interested in what others in your sector are doing? Is that sort of, is that compare and contrast thing really helpful? I, th- I think it is, but it's it, it's like we were saying earlier about um, apples and apples and pears. You know, the it's a lens. But I certainly find that if I bring data to my organisation, not not today throughout my career, if I come and say, this is how it's done in that organisation, or this is what it looks like in that organisation, I will be met with a degree of, but they'll be different to us. They're not like us. That's a global survey, Kate, and we only operate in the UK. Oh, but they're not in utilities. Oh, but they're not in energy. Oh, but they're not in construction. So it doesn't always land very well with our stakeholders. Um, I don't say that's right, but it's certainly a a battle that I have to have. So I would say it's a lens. You can't rely on it solely, but it does bring you some interesting perspective that is always valuable. Let's turn to planning and priorities. And again, here, I'm, I'm really asking for your experience to share your experience with listeners. It looks like from the research, we've stepped up when it comes to planning. We're doing more of it. But I do know that people still do struggle with planning. So off the bat, I was wondering whether you could share what you would do as a first step with someone who thinks, you know, our planning isn't really up to scratch at the moment. Is there a basic cornerstone that you'd put in place first? The first place to start has to be your business strategy and the objectives. What is the business looking to achieve? Who can help or who is involved in achieving that through the work that they do every day? So go and make another friend. You're already friends with the analysts. Go and make friends with your strategy team. Go and understand what the organisation is trying to achieve. And then you can lay on top of that what will touch the most people, um, either in terms of the number of people who are affected, the the, the biggest disruption in terms of any change programme, for example. So you can start to put those two things together to say, well, if X is really important to the organisation and requires a big change programme touching this number of people, I ought to put some good resource against that. So that will start helping you with your planning and prioritisation. And then the second thing is, say no more. 
Um, <laughs> without a filter, like the strategic objectives that I've just described, you, you have no reason to say no. You have nothing to push back with because everything is a priority. So I would say the business strategy and the objectives and the change plan have to be the first thing that you start with. And on the back of that, either say no or enable more, that self-serve that we were talking about from the report, help people um, either through user-generated content or through templates and toolkits that you might provide so that you preserve your resource for the bit that only you can do as comms people. You might not be able to answer this question because it might be confidential, but I'm going to give it a go. Can you give an example of a, a business goal or objective from Tarmac and how you've translated that into a, a comms ambition or at least an area of focus? Let me take values. Um, let me talk about values because values are the, the posters on the wall in every organisation. And I bet one of them says safety. So values has been a real focus for Tarmac. Um, we had six of them. Um, we'd inherited them from a previous iteration and they weren't right for the organisation. They were very much off their time and they weren't where we were now or where we wanted to go. So we did a lot of work um, with a number of um, colleagues in HR and other other teams to define a whole new set of values. But then the comms bit comes in, in terms of how we made them stick. So they turned into, um, they turned into behaviors and they turned into things that you were measured against in your, in your personal development plan. They are reflected in job descriptions. Um, and we do some very obvious, but you know, they, it needs to be clear line of sight stuff where every single story in any channel is it's, it's got a value statement on it. It's either got a little logo or it's got a little sentence within it that explains how this story aligns to either a value or one of the goals within the business strategy and sometimes both. So that's quite a literal way of signposting um, the values in action, uh, but we don't see enough of that. So I'm not going to apologise for being literal on that one. From the literal through to the the, the kind of more strategic, the, the, the values has been a really good exercise, I would say, at Tarmac. And what you've just described there is also a brilliant example of what you said earlier about connecting the dots. So finally, the report asks respondents to think ahead to the next two to three years. And it says, what do you see as the biggest emerging trends? And I'm just going to pick the top four because they're all sit up between sort of 50 and, and 40%. So number one, we've got featuring diverse voices. So that's inclusivity. Next, we've got authenticity in messages. And then we've got employee advocacy stroke user generated content strategies. And finally, we have at number four at 42% subscription models for communicators, the ability to choose how you're communicated with. So any reflections on those as trends for the next two to three years? I think some of them are in danger of um partly preaching to the converted and partly being a little bit inward looking. It's it's what does communications want to do for communication's sake? For example, the, the subscription model. Um, others on that list do speak to some some bigger trends. We've already talked about IND as, as being an important um, trend for 2021. Um, so yes, I think some of, some of them are, are in danger of looking a little bit inward looking, um, but there are other trends throughout the report that I think are more of interest to us from a cultural perspective um, that I would like to comment on. But I think employee experience, is it, the new, um, is, is, is it the new employee engagement? Of course it is. It's a buzzword. Yes, it is. Um, 
And if we don't define what we mean by employee experience, it's going to go the same way as employee engagement has, which is that it means everything and nothing, depending on how you cut it. But I think employee experience and the components that the report describes are the right things to focus on. I think the the digital piece particularly, because if we don't get that right, all we're doing is is heaping more pressure on people to be always on and looking at screen all day. And we, we know from doing that for 50 weeks or whatever it is now that that is not good for our well-being. Um, it is not a substitute for um, for social interaction. And, and it does mean that you just spend hours and hours in this room on this screen. And that's just that's just not sustainable. So I think they are the right focus areas. Um, I, I think it's 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 not about teaching people how to use the tools. It's about creating a culture where it's okay for flexible working to be the norm. And my flexible looks different to yours, and that's okay. So that asynchronicity that we talked about earlier, I think, is really important. That's the big shift that we haven't done yet. We're not working flexibly. We're calling it flexible working, but we're not. We're trying to work in the same way that we did in the office, just sitting on the screen all day. So I, I think the cultural um, focus areas and the digital focus areas are the right ones, yeah. I've heard this phrase asynchronicity before, and I just want to make sure for listeners we're, we're defining it for them. I, I think um, when it's used in terms of sort of using these digital tools um, and in terms of flexible working, it means that you and I don't need to be working on the same thing at the same time for it to be effective. So you might choose um, to do a couple of hours in the morning before the kids go to school, get them to school, come back and do a couple more hours later when I've logged off. But we're still working on the same thing and that's okay. We don't both have to extend our working days so that suddenly we're working 14 hours just so that we're sat on the same document together, for example. So that asynchronicity for me means that we aren't doing the work at the same time, but we're still contributing and collaborating. I suppose there's another aspect to it, which is this um, hybrid um, workplace that asynchronicity will reflect, which is that some people will want to and maybe needed to go back to the office full time. Some people will choose to work a few days a week in the office and a few days a week at home or vice versa. And and that brings another challenge, I think, for for organisations and for communications people. It's not only about making sure that people get access to the information they need when they need it. But it's about getting the same access to opportunities. Presenteeism was a danger before the pandemic, and I think it's still a danger now. So we need to make sure that the people that choose to be in the office more often are not the only ones that are visible and are not the only ones that get the opportunities. Somebody can be working from home more often because it suits their lifestyle or their particular day, um, and they must be able to participate in those opportunities in exactly the same way as someone who chooses to be more visible because they're present. So I think yeah. um, I think the new ways of working and the new hybrid or blended workplace that a lot of studies are pointing towards will bring many challenges for communicators and for organisations. The thing that did surprise me was it, it seemed that engaging people in, in, in strategy is, is less important in 2021 than it was in 2020. Um, now, given the likelihood of strategic changes and people impact and, and that prevalence of flexible working going on or becoming a, per, a permanent fixture for at least part of the week. That worried me if it's become less important, because I think it's actually more important than it's ever been to help people understand where they fit in the organisation and the part that they play. I agree. And I think I would be worried about IC people. You talked about making friends with your strategy team, but the economic impact of this pandemic 
could well change business models, not, not maybe not forever, but certainly temporarily. So it might be your business is about to change or at least morph slightly <laughs> into something it wasn't before as there is just purely as an economic result of this. So I had a final question, Kay. I don't know if it's still relevant, but just from talking purely what you're particularly thinking about pondering at the moment because I have this theory that the longer you work in IC or any profession for that matter you get more and more interested in what's on the edges of that subject matter because you know the core pretty well so it's the kind of leading edges of things that tend to get you quite excited and I don't know if that's fair would would you say that's true for you? Yeah, I, I recognise that. And I, I mean, I got my first job in internal comms in 1996, um, which for the younger viewers is literally the last century. But yeah, I, I think you're right. And it also takes me back to that point about relationships, not reporting lines. I've always had a very close relationship with with HR um, and, and made it my business to be friends with the strategy team, because I think those two things are the Venn diagram of what we do and we're at the center of it. My my favorite job, my favorite job title was um, business partner for people and culture. And that, that was brilliant. That's why I do what I do. So to see these cultural considerations like flexible working, like inclusion and diversity, like bringing your whole self to work and this sense of belonging that's so important, to see these sorts of things coming out in the report are really, really encouraging because I, I think you're right. Whether it's, whether it's at the edges of what we do or whether it should be at the centre of what we do um, would, would be a different way of looking at it. But, but I think to see them coming out in this report is really encouraging because I know it's what a lot of internal comms people have been pushing for for a long time. It does look like, and I noticed in the report, it does ask about collaboration across functions. And it's something that I think is holding back the employee experience at the moment. So I think we we probably, that's going to be the next challenge for us, isn't it? We know we can't solve these problems on our own. You know, we only report into one function, whether we like that function or not. So yeah, how do we solve these problems? And that's got to be by breaking down, and I'm going to use the phrase because we know we've got them, the silos in organisations. They exist everywhere, don't they? That's going to be a key challenge next year, this year and next year. Well, okay, you said silos, but at least you didn't say seat at the table. But that's what we're talking <laughs> about. But which table? And take your own chair. That's what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, Kate, if you've got time, I'd love to ask you those quick fire questions. I've only been waiting two years to ask these questions, Kate, so no pressure. <laughs> you didn't give me two years to come up with the answers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so what would most surprise people about Kate Jones? Probably that I pretty much failed my A-levels um, oh. and took a very um, strange route um, into communications. Although I've always worked in communications, I took a bit of a strange route to get there. So um, I should have got two A's and a B. Um, I did not. I got a C and two E's. And I had to take a slightly different route um, to get into university, which long story short means that I am trained as an English teacher, a primary school teacher. And that's how I managed to get into university. I went in through a teacher training combined degree route. Um, but yeah, that might surprise people to know that my life did not start the way it was supposed to start at all. And we had to take a little bit of a scenic route to get to university. <laughs> scenic route, I love it. <laughs> any any regrets ever about not, you know, looking after a class of primary school children? Well, given that I'm child free by choice, I'm going to say no. <laughs> no regrets at all. <laughs> 
So what do you wish you had known when you first started out in your career? It took me a long time to realise that sometimes you need to move in order to progress. You know, you're not a tree. You don't have to stay where you're planted. Um, And I had a great time in my first organisation. I was there for eight years, but I didn't need to be there for eight years. I I didn't grow for all of those eight years. Um, I just didn't trust myself that I could go and be effective somewhere else. So I, I wish I'd been a bit braver earlier on, probably, and and left that organisation and, and applied my craft somewhere different sooner. It's an interesting answer because it always feels when I'm speaking to, to clients and we're having that very personal conversation that's not really about work but about them, and I always have that feeling that, you know, organisations get the communicators they deserve and that cuts both ways. You're a brilliant communicator with a brilliant organisation. But there is a moment when you've got to be honest with yourself and say, mm-hmm. it just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get this job to be what I really want it to be or yeah. this organisation to be what I really want it to be or my my communications activity to be the best that I know it can be. And, 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 and at that point, you have to, you have to move on, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What book do you recommend all professional communicators should read? I still like Making the Connections by Bill Quirk. Um, I, I know it's 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 celebrated many anniversaries, but I still refer to it. I still like it. Um, there's a lot in there that that's still relevant today. And then on more recent perspective, um, I like Build It, the Rebel Playbook for Employee Engagement, which came out two or three years ago um, and, and talks about how we can best uh, treat people at work to uh, enable business success, basically. So it's it's a couple of years old. It's called the Build It Rebel Playbook for World Class Employee Engagement by Glenn Elliott and Deborah Corey. And yeah, that's that's one that I've I've made lots of notes on. Excellent. Thank you for that recommendation. So here's a question: What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you could not fail? So we take failure off the table. I'd have the day off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, but when I came back the next day, um, I would I would turn off all central internal comms and let line managers do their job and would let them lead. Um, we will make ourselves redundant one day if we truly enable and and empower line managers to do that all important job. I'm confident in saying it because I know it won't happen in my lifetime in my career. Um, but I do think. Um, that, that that line managers really hold many more keys than, than we than we let them use. So I would I would have a day off and I would see how line managers got on without us. I've got to ask you a visionary question in that case because as part of my work with the IABC, so that's the International Association of Business Communicators, we do lots of sort of looking into the far horizon, you know, mega trends. Mm. And one of the trends we're debating about at the moment is whether communications is going to be part of almost everybody's job, an important part. And you might be part of an ethics committee, you might be part of a strategic team, you might be part of a social media team, but we won't have generalists very much more that slowly the generalist communicator who just looks after external comms or internal comms will disappear. And it will be, if you like, communications will be buried or part of embedded, I should say, into other people's roles. What do you reckon? I reckon communications is already part of everyone's job, whether you realise it or like it or not. Um, And 
internal comms needs to get better at helping people do that job whilst whilst we are still around um is what i would say um i, I think i think something else that's emerged from this pandemic that i've read quite a, a lot about is that people who previously might have struggled to be heard in the organization perhaps they're of a more introverted personality type are coming into their own now that we're all typing to each other and we're all working in a different way and we're not just we're not just putting introverts into high pressure perform brainstorm right now be creative right now type situations if we're working in a more flexible way maybe some more personality types not just you know enthusiastic extroverts like me maybe some of those people will come to the fore so i think that might be another interesting thing to explore and keep an eye on mm, yeah very interesting so we give you a billboard for millions to see and you can put any message on this billboard that you like what are you going to put on that billboard my billboard is going to say, run your own race. Comparison is the thief of joy. You know, I know we've just been talking about benchmarking. I know we've spent ages talking about a really interesting piece of research. But when it comes to your own career and your own satisfaction, only you know what's important to you. And comparing yourselves to other people's careers and other people's experiences when you can only see them from the outside looking in is not going to get you anywhere. So know what's important to you and stick to it. So my billboard says run your own race. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, the only thing I'm surprised about in this whole conversation is that we haven't mentioned Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> and when you said what would surprise, surprise most people about Kate Jones, I, I just had a feeling you would tell us how many times you've seen the musical. I don't think that would surprise anybody. My life is an open book. <laughs> As someone who has never seen it, I hate to say this, I have never seen it. How many times? 28, no, I think. Whoa! <laughs> but if you haven't seen it, wait until you can go and see it live. Don't yes. watch the film because you'll get a very poor facsimile of it. It's the same yes. show, but there's nothing like going to see it live. So I would say yeah. hold off for a little bit. Patience. Yeah. Go later this yeah. year when it reopens and I hope you love it. Let's go together. Yeah, no. It's a, a constant. Yeah, sounds good to me. Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. That was so helpful in so many different ways. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be extremely grateful if you could rate it on your podcast platform particularly Apple Podcasts, as I'm told that that's the very best way of us becoming more discoverable for other IC pros out there. To find out more about the books and the other resources Kate and I mentioned, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. We have some great guests coming up on the show. The behavioural science guy, William Leach, who is author of Marketing to Mind States, senior IC practitioner, Prathana Thakur, and the wonderful Advita Patel, plus Mark Webb, with a very moving story that I really just, well, I can't wait to share with you. So you might want to hit that subscribe button today. 
Finally, I'd like to thank all of those listeners who reach out to me on LinkedIn and Twitter to say how much you enjoy the show. Your feedback means the world to me. This show would be nothing without you. So until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs>